Let's pray. Father, I just thank you so much for this time that you have given us to come together and study your word. I thank you for bringing us all safely to this place, God. I thank you for your faithfulness to us and the grace that you have shown us. Lord, I pray that as we um, study your word right now, Lord, that you would just speak to us, that you would reveal yourself to us and help us to see you more clearly. Father, I pray that you would help us to be the people that you have created us to be, Lord, that you would be honored in our speech and our conduct and that we would bring glory to you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so who in here likes the show Fixer Upper? Emily has still never seen Fixer Upper. She's the, only per- she's the only person I know who doesn't know who Chip and Joanna Gaines are. Okay, but do- is there anyone else in here who can keep Emily company? Do you- does-, does anyone else not? You don't? <sighs> you are going to make my illustration fall apart. <laughs> you watch the weather channel. <laughs> okay, well, just imagine any other, like, home makeover type show, right? Okay. Specifically in Fixer Upper, what happens, they, they, Chip and Joanna Gaines are um, a couple in Waco, Texas. They remodel homes. And usually it's like the worst house ever that nobody would ever want to live in. They're, they take that one and they make it amazing. So the beginning of the show, for those of you who haven't seen it, there is a ho- there's a pair of homebuyers who want to go, they want to you know, buy the falling apart house and remodel it. They want to, like, get the most out of their money by doing it that way. So Chip and Joanna, they'll take them around. They'll show them three or four houses. They're terrible. None of them look good. But then they show them what the house could be. And so they invest the money. And at the end, um, what do they get? This house that's better than new, right? Like, they take that old nasty house that nobody wanted, and they sink their time and their attention into it. They get, like, the work of Chip, who is... <coughs> And his crew are like master carpenters, master worksmen. And, and at the end, you have this fully restored house that um, is able to be the kind of place that people want to live in. Whereas before, no one wanted to live in it. Now they do. And that is kind of the function of a house, right? For someone to live in it. And if it can't perform that function, then there's no point in it even being there, right? So they take the house, they restore it, and then suddenly it is able to be to fulfill its purpose. And we are a lot like that before Christ and after Christ. We're a lot like that old house that nobody wants to be a part of. Nobody wants to have anything to do with it. But then God comes in and he intervenes and he does for us what we could not do for ourselves. And he makes us new and he makes us alive. And then at the end, we are able to live fully in the life that he created us for to begin with. And so that's what today's passage is all about. It's about our transformation, our own makeover story, if you will, our own before and after, and the big reveal, you know, where our transformation from death to life is is the illustration that Paul uses and the dramatic change that comes over us as believers after Christ has entered our lives and the difference that it makes. And that's the metaphor he uses is from death to life. But before we go into all of that, let's back up a little bit and review a little bit from last week. Because if you remember, it was all about the blessings that have come to us through salvation, through our belief in Christ. Um, When we are in him, we have redemption through his blood. We have forgiveness of sins. Um, We have the immeasurably great power of God at work within us. 
And so that whole first chapter is that big long list of things that we are grateful for, all the blessings that we have been giving, given. And toward the end of it, he goes into a lot of detail about the power of God and what it did in Christ. Do you remember what specifically, what specific example of that power he gave? Power that was able to raise Christ from the dead. So it's the resurrection power of Christ that's at work within us. And it's important for us to take a kind of quick look back at that because he, in this next chapter, these first 10 verses of chapter 2, he's going to kind of draw a parallel between the physical death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and our own spiritual death and the resurrection that God works out in us. And so he sets the two up as this parallel, like Christ was physically dead, but God raised him from the dead. He raised him up. He seated him in the heavenly places. He gave him triumph over all the spiritual forces that were at work within us, I mean, within the world. And so this, he sets that up as this great power that God has. And then he turns in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So Jesus was physically dead, but we were spiritually dead. He says specifically we were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's not really a very pretty picture that he paints there. Um, But he's saying, you were dead. And he makes it pretty clear. He says, like the rest of mankind, we all once lived in this. This is something that describes the spiritual state of everyone before they are in Christ. No one escapes from this. And he says specifically, as he's describing this kind of life before Christ, he names... um, Five things that characterize it. First, he says we were spiritually dead. It says that in verse in verse one. Now, can dead things do anything for themselves? Like if my phone battery was dead, could it get up and walk itself to the charger and plug itself in? No, like dead things can't do anything for themselves. They are basically useless. They're not fulfilling the purpose for which they were created because they are cut off from the source of life. Like a tree branch that has been cut off and cast aside, those things that are dead are good for nothing. And so as Paul is describing our spiritual death, he's saying you're dead because you are not attached to the source of life. And who is the giver of all life? God is. And if you remember in the book of John, Jesus calls himself, he says, I am the way the truth, and the life. And so apart from Christ, there is no life. There is no spiritual life at all. And so we were spiritually dead. Um, The second characteristic it gives us of our life before Christ is that we were marked by sin and tainted by it. Okay? So the the characteristics of our lives um, were basically following following a pattern of the world, which is also part of the next one, but we were um, engaging in behavior that did not line up with the teaching of God. So we are marked by that. We are marred by it and changed by it. Um, It says we walked in these things, and then it goes on to say we followed the course of the world, and we followed the prince of the power of the air. Okay, So so who is that referring to? Satan. Satan. Right? So 
we followed the world. And when it's talking about the world, it's talking about the fallenness, the fallen culture that we live in. And I think that we can see it pretty easily that on its own, own, which direction does the world go? Like south. It goes downhill fast, right? I think right now we're kind of facing a lot of kind of cultural issues in our own country, and it's easy to see the direction that culture will take apart from God. And it's not a good one. And so before Christ, we followed that, like we're easily influenced by it. We are led astray by the world, and we're also led astray by Satan. We're kind of domineered and dominated by this prince of the power of the air. But Paul makes it clear that you were, before Christ, following these things. You were dominated by Satan. But even though you are no longer because you are in Christ, um, Satan is still at work. He says, this prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Okay? So even though we are no longer controlled by Satan, he is still at work in the world. He is still influencing others and, and still um, bringing about this plan that is against God's. Okay? So he is still at work. That battle is ongoing around us. And so, in addition to be driven by outside influences, the world and Satan, he goes on to say that we were also driven by inside influences. He says we're controlled by the flesh and by our mind. Um, and when I think about this, like, I, like fleshly desires are easy to understand because, I mean, hormones, right? <laughs> like, people go crazy. Um, and, and it's easy to see people who are obviously controlled by the flesh. You know what that looks like. Then, like, trying to figure out what it means that our mind, like, we're controlled by our mind. And the only thing that I can think is that when we are mired in sin, what do you do? Like, if you make that choice to sin, you have to justify it to yourself, right? Like, you come up with all these reasons why it was okay that you did that thing that you did. Because apart from God, every single part of us is tainted right down to our thoughts, and since our thoughts are control our actions, you know, it, it's an outflow. Our sinful lifestyles are an outflow of our entire being being tainted by sin. Does that make sense? It's a pretty dire picture that he's painting. Um, he's basically saying that there is no part of human existence that escapes from this sinfulness. It touches everything. It touches every single part of life. And then he goes on to say, because of all of this, this, this bleak picture that he has painted, um, in verse 3 he says that we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were all, every single one of us, without exception this way. And so for those of us who, maybe you, like myself, um, accepted Christ as a young child, like it's hard for me to remember my life before Christ. It's hard for me to, I mean, like when you're nine years old, what kind of like powers of the flesh are controlling you, you know? But as I see my own children growing up, I think, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like it's real easy to see sin at work in a child. Like to, to know that like sinfulness is there from the very beginning. Like even if they're babies, we are selfish creatures, You know, like, all you care about is yourself from when you're a baby on. And I think that's, like, the height of a sinful lifestyle is being controlled by your own desires, by your own um, 
will and everything that you want to do and not considering anyone else until we are in Christ. And so he's basically laying, leveling the playing field. He's saying no one ex- is exempt for this. We, from this. We all, by nature, deserve the wrath of God. Like what should happen to us because we were controlled by sin, because we followed Satan, because we did all of these things, what should happen to us is that we be punished and we be punished greatly. That's wrath, right? When I think of wrath, I think of like fire and brimstone, Sodom and Gomorrah, bad news kind of stuff. He's saying that is what we all deserve. Something in us has been distorted and warped. And because of that, we're children of wrath. Um, which is not a very pretty picture at all. But then he says in verse 4, but God. And I think that those two tiny little words are some of the most powerful words in the entire Bible. And in your homework, I had you look, look up a list of other places where they were used. Um, on page 13, if you turn there, you can see a, a handful of the places it's used in the Bible. One of them is Genesis fifty twenty. And do you remember, you know, what, what is that, what happens in those verses? What is that referring to? Joseph's brothers. Joseph's brothers. Joseph's brothers did him a dirty deed, right? They sold him into slavery, sent him off, um, you know, because they were jealous of him, basically. So they obviously had no good intentions when it came to him. So Joseph is in Egypt, but what's the end of the story? He was a slave. He was thrown in prison. But is that how he stayed? No, because God redeemed that whole story. He changed it. And the verse says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. But God intended it for good. And so it was really, really bad, but God changed it into something really, really good. And then in 1 Samuel 23, 14, did anyone look that one up? What was that story about? Saul and David. Saul and David. So what, why did Saul not like David? Do you remember? He was jealous, like David had, Saul was the king, but then he disobeyed God, and so he lost God's favor. David is the next king, and Saul knows that he has been chosen by God, so he's basically chasing him and hunting him down. And these verses talk about how David is running from Saul, and what happens? Does Saul ever catch him? No, and I don't have the verses right in front of me, but I can in just a minute. It would be easier to look it up, but I do have it written down right here. Okay. It says, 1 Samuel twenty-three fourteen. David hid in the wilderness, and Saul sought him every day. But God did not give him into his hand. And the next set of verses was Acts chapter 10, verses 39 through 40. Those verses are talking about Jesus on the cross. It's a kind of sermon that Peter is giving. And he says in those verses talking about Jesus on the cross, they put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day. And then in Romans chapter 5, verses 7 through 8, I think these are the most powerful ones of the ones that we are looking at um, in this list. When he's talking about, again, Jesus' death on the cross. I'm going to start in verse 6. Romans chapter 5, verse six, 6, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
And so those two tiny words change everything. They're like the trump card of God. If you like to play spades, then you know, like if you've got that ace of spades in your hand, you're going to win that hand. You know, you're going to, or rook. Does anybody play rook in here? My husband's family plays rook. I did not know anything about it until he and I started dating, but they're like serious rook players, okay? I mean, it scares me sometimes to play with them because I'm pretty competitive, and so, I mean, it's not a good part of my spirit that comes out. I'm just like, I mean, we have got to win this. We cannot not win this. And if you have the rook card, you can take it all, you know? I mean, the, in cards, the trump card is the one that you want to have because it is the winning card to play. And so those two words, the but God, like the whole story can be going one way in a really bad direction. But those two words come up and it changes everything. It changes the course of everything. And for us, it changes our very lives because it says here um, in verse 4, it says, You were dead, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And the most beautiful thing about these verses to me is that God is not waiting for us to get it all together before it happens. What are the, when, when does it happen according to verse 5? It says, even when you were dead. And so we said earlier that dead things can't do anything. They can't help themselves. They can't plug themselves into the battery if they need it. Dead things are dead. But God is sovereign over all of that. And he does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. He plugs us into the source of life. He has mercy on us. And he shows us grace when we need it most. When what we fully deserved, because we were children of wrath, is anything but grace. He resurrected us spiritually. So just like in at the end of chapter 1, we talk about how he made Christ alive. He has done the same exact thing with us in a spiritual sense. And just as Jesus Christ is his son, we also saw last week that we have been adopted into his family. We are also children of God. Well, he did the same thing for us that he did for his other child. And he brings us up to his level. He elevates us when we should have been thrown into the pit of hell. So rather than hell, where does, what does it say that he does? He says he made us alive together and he raised us up with him and he seated us in the heavenly places with Christ. And so it's this reversal of everything that was true before is no longer true because of those two tiny words, but God. They change everything for us as believers. And it says in in verse 5 that this is accomplished through grace. It says, by grace you have been saved. And last week we talked a little bit about what grace is. Do you, does anyone remember the definition we gave? Anyone? Yes, it's the unmerited favor of God. Okay? So grace is totally something that is, is not deserved. Um, it is getting the reward instead of the punishment. It is um, getting the good things instead of the bad that you deserve. Okay? <coughs> And so what's at work here is um, two 
different sides of God's character, okay? Because we know that God is just, right? What does it mean for God to be just? Like a just judge. Like if someone is a corrupt judge, what happens? They let the bad people off. They go scot-free. And that is kind of what happens to us, right? Like we get off, we go scot-free. But God is not a corrupt just judge. He is just. And so in order for him to still be a just judge, someone has to pay for that sin. So because God is just, but he is also gracious, those two mingle together to give us redemption because that sin is paid for through Christ. Um, And that grace is what allows it to happen. And it's a glorious and marvelous thing. Like, have you ever experienced forgiveness when you did not deserve it? I mean, apart from God, like, have you ever had a friend, like, where you have really messed up, you have done something that you thought could not be taken back. And rather than showing you what you really deserve, someone chose to forgive you. I mean, have you ever been on the receiving end of that kind of grace? You're just thinking about how amazing that is in our humanly relationships and then apply it to your spiritual one. You know, the grace that God has shown us is so tremendous. He goes to great lengths here to tell us how rich it is. It's immeasurably great. It is limitless. And that means that it's not going to run out. There is enough to cover everything. It, it, is, it is big enough and it is strong enough and it is good enough to cover us. And that's a good thing because we were dead. And so it doesn't say that God um, like just plugs us into the battery long enough to like make it through for a little while and then we're going to die again. No, he says, by grace, you have been saved. Now, I'm going to go a little grammar nerd on you here because I have always been a grammar nerd. I was the one who liked diagramming sentences in English. Did anybody else like diagramming sentences or is it just me? Am I the only one in the room who liked it? You like it? Yes. Betsy was nodding her head. Did you like it too? Admit it. It's okay. It's okay to like it. I loved it. And let me tell you something. When I went to seminary, it totally came in handy because we had to diagram sentences in Greek. I'm just saying. I was so glad because there were people who didn't learn it in elementary school. They were like, what is this diagramming sentences stuff? And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm so happy. I love this. Okay. Another nerd moment, by the way, at this conference I went to last weekend, y'all, I was standing there talking to my friends from seminary because one of my good friends is like um, the marketing director for the seminary now. So I'm at the seminary booth. I'm talking to her and I look over at the table beside me. I'm like, they have free hand sanitizer, like the kind that you squirt, like the kind that's great for kids because you could just squirt a couple of pumps and you don't have to worry about like the whole, yes, okay, so I'm like, I just don't get the free hands and nobody's at the table because you know if there's somebody at the table you don't want to walk up to it you don't want to actually talk to the people who are giving out the hand sanitizer you just want the hand sanitizer let's be real this is true so I pick up the hand sanitizer I'm like look there's free hand sanitizer and my friend Meredith is like hey give me some of that so I go back to the table and I get another one I'm like here you go Meredith and Kristen's like I want some I'm like Ugh. Okay, so I go back for the third time to get another one. And about that time, this guy comes walking up. And he's like, my wife told me to get the hand sanitizer because she said nobody wants another pen. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, he just saw me take three of his hand sanitizers. Like, this is not good. Then he introduces himself, y'all. He was the man who wrote my Greek textbooks. No lie. He said, I'm Bill Meltz. And I was like, you're Bill Meltz. (laughs) I don't know who you are. Okay. 
grammar nerd total. I know. Y'all can't. Anyway, Bill Mounts taught me what I'm about to tell you, and I met him this weekend. So, okay. Yes. Yes. So you can you can be thankful to Bill Mounts for this lesson that's about to happen. Okay, (laughs) at the end of the verse where it says, by grace, you have been saved. That have been saved, it's not your regular past tense kind of verb, okay? It's in the perfect tense. And a verb that is in the perfect tense in Greek, I don't think it's exactly the same as in English, but in Greek, it, it describes an action that has been completed in the past, but has ongoing consequences. It's like the force of the action is still going on. Okay? So when he says, you have been saved, he's saying that's something that has been done, but you are still saved and you will continue to be saved because that action just keeps on going. Okay? And in this case, we know that it keeps on going forever because he's also talking about our future and being raised up into the heavenly places. And it's an assurance that this salvation that you have is not going anywhere. Now, you can't base all of that off of the grammar alone. I mean, that'd be great if you could. But the grammar helps us to understand that this is significant. He's reminding them um, that this is not something that happened and that has to happen again. And that has to happen again. He says, no. By grace, you have been saved. And that grace covers what happened then and what happened in between then and what happens in the future. Okay? The grace is big enough to cover your sins, past, present, and future. It covers it all. Okay? That grace, that is the gift that God has given us. What God has done for Christ then, not that Christ needed any grace, but what he has done for us through Christ, what God did for Christ, he has also done for all believers. He raised Christ from the dead. We've already talked about how we have been made spiritually alive. But then he was also exalted to heaven, right? He raised Christ up. He seated him in the heavenly places. And that's what he says here. He has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, what? He may show the immeasurable riches of his grace. And what this comes down to is that this whole thing is not about us at all. Our salvation has nothing to do with us. It is has everything to do with God and who he is. It has everything to do with his grace and his mercy and his love. Because it says here that the whole point of it all, the whole point of resurrecting spiritually dead people and bringing them to life and raising them up is so that he may get glory. That's the point. And he goes on to say further in in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, pointing out again this is all about God it's the gift of God not a result of works so that no one can boast and then he says in verse 10 for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them and so what he's saying here is that you are saved so that you may do good works not the other way around 
you do not do good works so that you can be saved. That's not right. It is the opposite of that. We are saved so that we can do good works. And all of this is so that God's limitless grace, His great mercy that He has shown us, um, the tremendous love that He has poured out on us, it's all so that it can be on full, unapologetic display. Because once you have seen a life that has been transformed by that kind of grace and by that kind of love, um, then you cannot deny the hand of God at work. Have you, do you know anyone who has had such a dramatic transformation? And just think about that person and how powerful their testimony was because in them, the fullness of God's character is being displayed. Now, to back up a little bit, when we talk about how God did all of this for us when we were dead in our sins, while we were yet sinners, all that sort of thing, um, I think a lot about like in humanly love and in, in humanly relationships. Like we all have someone that we know and love who has been through a string of bad relationships, right? And what we usually say about them is, he deserves better than that. He needs someone who is better than that, okay? But God's love for us is not the same as that. He doesn't wait for us to get better before he loves us. He, his love for us, He loves us even when we are at our most unlovely. I mean, what could be more unlovely than a stinking, rotting corpse? Because that's the imagery that Paul is laying out here. You were dead. I mean, that is not a pretty picture. It's pretty graphic. Okay. While the stench of the grave is still on us, while that rot is still clinging to us, that is when God draws us in and pulls us near. And it's like the picture of the prodigal son, right? What had the prodigal son done? He had like, well, he, was, he had left home and he was so bad off that he was like wanting the food that the pigs ate. Have you ever thought about what he must have looked and smelled like crawling home? He had been literally living with the pigs. And as he's walking back up to the house, what does his father do? Does he say, oh, go take a bath? No, he embraces him. He says, bring out the best cloak. Let me put it on him. When we would be like, get cleaned up. And after that, then I'll get you some new clothes. That's not what the father does. The father clothes him in the best and he covers over the filth and he covers over the nastiness. And so for us, This transition from death to life, whereas before we were spiritually dead, after Christ, we are alive. And whereas before we were marked by sin and tainted by it, now we are covered by the blood of Christ. And before we followed the world and Satan, but now we follow Jesus. Before, we were controlled by the flesh and our thoughts and all that kind of stuff. But now, we are controlled by the Spirit. And before, we were children of wrath, bound for destruction. But now, we are children of God who are saved by grace. 
who are seated in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. God has taken every single bit of our former existence and transformed it and redeemed it into something beautiful and into something new. He has taken what we are by nature, which is sinners and pretty nasty and bound for nothing good, and he has shown us what happens to humanity, to what humanity can become through his grace. It is all because of his grace that we are able to do this. When he's talking about in verse 10 these that we are Christ, his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, um, it's kind of like new creation kind of language that he's, that he's using here. We were created in Christ Jesus. We are his workmanship. When I think of something that's workmanship, what, well, what do you think of when you think of workmanship? Is it something that's just thrown together? No. It's like the hand of an artisan, right? Um, like a master craftsman who is painstakingly putting together every detail to make it just right. And what Paul is saying is here is that we were created by a master craftsman. We are his workmanship and that we were created for the purpose of doing good works. When did God prepare these? Beforehand. And so what it all comes down to, this whole entire passage, is the sovereignty of God because God prepared it beforehand. And um, another little grammar nerd moment for you. Um, This passage is a good example of a chiasmus, which is two parallel statements that kind of mirror each other. Okay? So in in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2 it says you are dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air the spirit of the and he goes on and say he says in which you once walked you were dead in these trespasses and sins in which you once walked now look down to chapter to verse 10 how does the passage end what are we walking in now does anyone want to say it out loud Good works. And so whereas before, we didn't care about anything but gratifying our own selfish desires and, you know, following the flesh and doing all that stuff. Now we are doing good works so that we may glorify God. It, it's like bookends of a subject. It's like from start to finish, this is, this is how it goes. And everything in between um, shows us what, what God's grace can do and what he has done for us. Um, and so the, the final thought that I have here is that so many times we, we think of faith and we think of Christianity as like, we think of that moment of salvation as a finish line. You know, like, yes, we've been saved. And like, that's it. Like, period. But when it comes to the Christian life, that's not how it should be. That is the starting line, not the finish. And it's quite clear that we are saved, not just for our own benefit, but so that we may bring glory to God. And the way that we do that is for these, through these good works that he has prepared for us by leaning in to the purpose that he has for us, by exploring those gifts that he has given us and using them for his glory. Because that's the point of it all. 
is to bring glory to him. And if we are not doing that, then we aren't living into the purpose that God has created us for, the reason for all of it. And so the question for us is, what is characterizing your life now? What are the characteristics of your life? Are you still, is your life still characterized by the before? Or is it primarily characterized by the after? You know, I mean, sin is an ongoing struggle in the Christian's life, but it should no longer control us. Um, It should not be the defining characteristic of our lives. The grace of God should be. Um, and a pursuit of Christ-likeness should be. And so just like the people on Fixer Upper would be crazy to go and, like, undo all the good that Chip and Joanna have done to, like, let the house fall into disrepair again, we would be crazy to go back to that life before because we have all these benefits of the kingdom now. This is like a realized kind of salvation. We have been saved now. We are we are already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. We have already been given victory. And what that's really saying when it <clears throat> when it says that Christ is seated in the heavenly places in chapter 1 verse 21, he says it's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Those are all the spiritual forces that are at work against us, okay? So Christ has, is seated above those things. He, is, he has mastered them. He has defeated them. And Paul says to us that we are seated in the heavenly places with them, which means that they should no longer master us, that we have been given victory over those things. We're seated at the side of the victor. And so my encouragement to us is to live into that reality to be the people that God has created us to be, to act as if it's true that we have been spiritually made alive, that we are no longer dead, but that we are alive, that our lives would be marked by the power of God, by the grace of God, and that his love would flow out from us to others so that we would be bringing him glory and so that we would be doing those good works that he has created us for us to do. Because that is what we have been created for. So that is all that I have for tonight. Does anyone have any other um, insights or questions or anything from your reading that you want to talk about or no pressure? Okay. Well, then I will pray for us and then we will break into our small groups for a little while. And um, then we can go on home from there. Go out into this world and be these people doing good works in Jesus' name. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your goodness and for the grace that covers over all of our sins. Thank you for loving us enough to die for us even when we were dead in our trespasses and in our sins. Lord, thank you for working your power within us to make us into something new and something lovely and something beautiful. God, I pray that you would help us to fulfill the purpose that you have set before us. 
that you would help us to bring glory to your name and point others to you, Lord, and that you would show us what these good works are that you have for us to do, that you would give us the confidence to do them, that you would enable us with all that we need to step into them and to live them out. Father, I pray that as we break into these small groups, Lord, that you would direct our conversation, that you would be glorified in it, God, and that um, as we leave from here, that your glory would shine forth from us. Lord, we love you, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.